Welcome to the Skift Podcast, weekly conversations on global travel trend lines. Iceland exploded on the world scene literally in 2010 when a volcanic eruption wreaked havoc on air travel in and beyond Europe for days. So that attention put the land of volcanoes, hot springs, and breathtaking views on the map. And thanks to that and a combination of other factors, tourism grew more than 250% between 2010 and 2015. Last year, nearly 1.3 million foreign tourists visited the country. In a way, that's a great development for Iceland, which was in an economic recession with the rest of the globe not too long ago. But the influx of tourists is also bringing concerns about the environment, infrastructure, housing, and the impact on residents' quality of life. Skift wanted to explore how tourism, actually what we're calling over-tourism, has affected Iceland over the last several years. So we sent my colleague Andrew Shavakman to the country for about a week, where he interviewed more than a dozen tourism powerhouses and insiders. He put together a 12,000-word deep dive that can be found online at skift.com slash Iceland hyphen tourism. On today's episode of the Skift Podcast, we're talking about how Iceland became a hot tourist spot, the tiny country's complicated relationship with its visitors, and how the problems of over-tourism can be addressed. Andrew, thanks for taking on that very tough assignment and joining me today. Thanks for having me. So before you were assigned this story, what did you really know about Iceland? And what was your sense of what like the general traveling public knew about the country? Well, from a journalistic perspective, I knew that Iceland had been experiencing an unprecedented boom in tourism. Um, and at the same time, Iceland had a reputation for being, you know, environmentally pristine, uh, a very small country in terms of its citizens, but very large in terms of its geography. It's about the size of Portugal. Um, so that's what I knew. And uh, in terms of the traveling public, I knew that all of a sudden this destination, which had been more of a bucket list type place, had suddenly become really popular with all kinds of different people. So like a million point three visitors is not gigantic in the scope of international tourism. But when you look at the gains they've had um, year over year, it's been huge. So what really happened to put Iceland on the map in a way that caused it to see such explosive growth? Well, a lot of it has to do with the 2008 global financial crisis. So Iceland uh, was hit really hard. Its three biggest banks essentially went bankrupt and had to restructure. This affected the entire Icelandic economy, but most of all, it drove down the value of the currency. So what this meant was Iceland became cheaper for outsiders. So people who had had this on their bucket list said now is a good time to go. Um, at the same time, native Icelanders didn't have as much money, so sort of the domestic travel market dropped and uh, Iceland Air, the major airline, decided to pivot and cater more towards international clientele. So these two things combined, it suddenly became a lot easier for people around the world to get to Iceland. And then there was um, that volcanic eruption in 2010 that really just kind of messed things up for the whole for air travel around the world, but I guess also like drew attention 
to you couldn't Iceland. have a more large billboard for your country when you have <laughs> a giant volcano shutting down all air travel. <laughs> and what that did, it sort of you couldn't go a day without reading about the effect of Iceland on travel. So this created an even bigger impression. At first, really only avid travelers and insiders really knew that Iceland became, you know, a much cheaper destination. But this really showed the Icelandic environment to people all around the world. And then once they started figuring out how cheap it was compared to how it used to be, then they started coming too. And this is really when tourism took off in Iceland. That's interesting. Um, you spoke to a lot of people about how the country got where it is. And here's what one high-profile industry leader had to say. This is Grimer Sabinson. He's the CEO of Blue Lagoon and also the chairman of the Icelandic Travel Industry Association. Of course, uh, all the world was focused on Iceland during the crash. Um, we had this uh, uh, eruption in Eyjafjallajökull uh, uh, two years later. Uh, at the same time, we made a lot of marketing effort to, to try to uh, promote Iceland as a tourist destination. Uh, then also, um, it was uh, uh, so it was kind of a combination of, of external events and our own initiative that, that created this, uh, this um, uh, interest in the country. So it was really a mix of stuff happening that drove attention and then their active marketing. Uh, and you also spoke to the director general of the Icelandic Tourist Board. She was doing a little Monday morning quarterbacking. Um, she's Olaf Ir Atladotter. Tourism is the factor that got us out of the recession and placed us where we are now, you know, with, with uh, reference to, to economic growth and, and where we're standing as a society. So, and when you're in a, you know, when you're in a recession and you need, you need to build something up, of course you focus on marketing. You know, in a 2020 hindsight visionary sort of way, you could say that we should maybe have focused also on the infrastructure at the same time. But maybe we, but of course we couldn't foresee this tremendous growth in interest for Iceland. And that is also coupled with the fact that in these five years, the globe, the, the, you know, the world has gone out of a recession. So people are traveling right. more and more. So growth in tourism in general is changing. So why, why is that not just an awesome thing for the country? How is tourism complicating life for natives? And, and what is this over-tourism that you wrote about? Well, it's a little bit of a complicated issue because overall, people I talk to in Iceland are extremely pro-tourism. It's become the biggest industry in the country. And as a people, they're very welcoming to outsiders. They like showing people the environment. They like welcoming people into their homes. So it's not really a cultural thing against tourism, which you might expect. Really, it's more about the effect of having about 30,000 extra people in a small country every week, um, tour buses, rolling over roads that aren't really built for it. Um, tourist groups, tour buses going to normally pristine locations and then either polluting them or even their mere presence there offends some Icelanders because they felt like it was the land belonged to everyone in the country. Um, and you have people coming from outside and they're not respectful in the same way that people who are from Iceland are. Um, also, tourism has changed the entire city of Reykjavik. 
you know, before five years ago, people in Iceland didn't really want to live in Reykjavik. There was really nothing there. There were some shops downtown, some restaurants, but it wasn't really like an international European city. What's happened in the last five, six years is it's become a cultural destination. It's become an area with art and nightlife. Um, so it has changed. Um, people in Iceland would never go to Reykjavik to shop. They would shop in malls. Now there's shopping um, and certain people feel like it's changed, you know, what was really unique and singular about the city, even if it wasn't amazing to begin with. So there's just a lot of tension about um, the past and the future and what changes are happening. And especially in Reykjavik, where is the, are there enough places for all of those tourists to go and to stay? Like, how are they accommodating this increase, especially when it takes, you know, however many years to build a new hotel? Right. So the short answer is no, which is what has led to the extreme growth of Airbnb in the city due to the rapid growth of tourism. The city just hasn't been able to build enough hotels to house these people. So average Icelanders are opening up their homes on Airbnb. And while most people are supportive of this because they make a little bit of money, a lot of people actually have summer homes sort of in the wilderness that they go to during the summer months, which are sort of the, the peak tourism months of the year for Iceland. It's still created a tension because property prices are going up. Um, you have random foreign people wandering in your neighborhood, in your apartment building. Now that Reykjavik's a little hip, you have younger people, more backpackers who instead of going off into the mountains, they're staying in the city to party and this creates a disturbance. Um, so Airbnb has really helped fill the gap in terms of hotel supply. Um, the government there at the end of the year will put into effect a new law sort of regulating you know, how long you can rent your house, how much you can earn. And it's still an open question of whether these regulations will do anything or the speculators will still speculate, prices will remain high, all that stuff. You talked to Solvi Malax. He's the founder of the car sharing company Cario. And he spoke to you about those supply and demand issues at play. They're expecting 5.7% increases of hotels in Reykjavik this year. If you have 5.7% increase in hotels and over 30% increase in number of tourists coming here, it's a math. You can do it. Okay, if you're in Barcelona, maybe there are lots of hotels that have closed down and easier to reopen or there are anywhere like Mallorca or somewhere in Spain. But in Reykjavik, this increase has been now for almost five years. There's a massive shortage of housing. There's a massive shortage, shortage of hotels. Um, there is a housing problem, and that's the reason they are so restrict. Is because renting long-term is getting more and more expensive. And that's because people are going short-term rentals rather than long-term rentals because you make so much money from more yeah. money from it than the other. Did you feel like there was much resentment when you were there? Like, how how do you feel? You were there at an exciting time um, during the soccer championship, but what? How were you kind of embraced by the locals? I felt really warmly welcomed, and I was surprised because going in, I had heard of a backlash against tourists. I had heard about over tourism sort of affecting 
affecting the city of Reykjavik in particular. But when I was there, everyone was delightful. And when I spoke to people, they were all extremely welcoming. Um, I think that the issue is more structural. Um, the idea of people coming in, Airbnb driving up housing prices so you can't afford the apartment that you were in for the last five years. It's more about these economic issues than it is, you know, keeping foreigners out or de denying people access to explore the country. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite slices of the story was this very honest description of kind of the change in mindset that's been required uh, on the part of locals by this move to a tourism heavy economy. And this is, again, from Olaf Atladotir, who is the Icelandic Tourist Board Director. You know, we were just realizing what tourism is. It's a totally different industry from all others. I mean, you can go out and fish. And you go and get your fish, and then it comes back. And then somebody in the factory that sort of makes the, you know, prepares packs it, yeah. and prepares it, and then it's sold. And that, of course, is a tremendous economic impact. But then everybody goes home. And the fish aren't bothering you out in the streets asking where the restaurant is or, or aren't using your buses or aren't, you know, yeah. utilizing a lot of the public goods. You know, they aren't sitting in your swimming pools, you know. You know, they're just, you know, that, the industry is over here and your daily life is here. Whereas tourism is sort of, everything is sort of, well, organic and plastic and going sort of back and forth. And the visitors are visitors and they're not only visiting the country, they're visiting you. Right. They want to get to know you. <laughs> Images of like... <laughs> fish with selfie sticks. But anyway, something that really surprised me about the story, aside from the fact that you spoke to two totally different people named Snorri Valsen. Uh, but other than that, I, I liked the way that your sources talked about how spoiled they are just by virtue of living in this um, large country without that many people. This is Schoolie Mogensen. Uh, he's the CEO of Wow Air, which is a low-cost Icelandic carrier. I think again, we as Icelanders, we are just so spoiled. You know, we we are used to having you have it all. No yeah. one around us. Yeah. So as soon as there's one person, it's like oh, that's crowded. Second thing we are spoiled at is to drive more than ten minutes anywhere. It's like oh, it's so far away. You know, whereas in America, to drive for two three hours is like. It's no big deal. Yeah. No big deal. So did you, everybody's talking about this crowding. Did you feel crowded? You live in New York. How did, well, how did it feel to you? It didn't feel that crowded. I could tell when I went around to the top tourist spots in the Golden Circle that they were pretty packed. Um, there were tour groups. There were dozens of people. But it didn't seem to me like New York when you walk past um, the Empire State Building, and there's just like a mob of people and you can't even walk past. But I grew up in the country in New Jersey, and it's sort of like if 100 people showed up to your local park, you'd be like, what is going on? This is out of control. So it's more just sort of the juxtaposition between sort of a modern cosmopolitan life and the fact that Iceland is a big country and there's not a lot of people in it. Yeah. So they've had all this growth and... I mean, the airlines are not cutting flights. They're still adding flights, right? So it's not like they're expecting the number of visitors to drop off. No, they're, in fact, they're expecting it to grow. Uh, some people said they even expected it to double in the next year or two again. So that would be about 3 million visitors. Um, that seems a little audacious, but everyone's acting like tourism is going to continue to grow. They need to keep 
ramping up their efforts to create new products, new flights to different places. I mean, everyone's full on board the tourism train there. Uh, and this is the Wow Air CEO again, who is talking about the expectations, but also the caution, I think, that, that needs to come along with those expectations. I am not an advocate for just unlimited visitors. I fully agree visitors are also you know, an, uh, an issue towards our nature and how to preserve things. And so uh, I have no problem with having a sort of a cap. Can we, if we want, go to 5 million? Yes. And I think, can we handle 5 million? Yes. Without, without hesitation, but it, it will again then need a lot more work. I think by just doing the small plastering that we're doing today, I think we can do 3 million without sort of killing ourselves. To go much above that, we would need to rethink fundamentally certain things that we do. So without, otherwise we will sort of start shooting ourselves in the foot. So what did people who you spoke to see as like the path to growing sustainably without ultimately shooting themselves in the foot? Well, there are a few issues at play here. One is that the growth of tourism was really unexpected. So there's no real central policy surrounding, you know, should the government charge an, charge an entry fee at the airport? Should there be toll roads put up? on tourist roads and should this this money be then reinvested into the infrastructure that conversation is still happening even though this growth has been going on for five years um i think there's also a cultural aspect because like i had alluded to earlier people in iceland are, are used to sort of being a very singular culture very spread out uh, how do you control the effect of an extra thirty thousand people a, a week in your country it's hard to even conceptualize what you would need to do. Um, I think the third issue is also um, throughout Iceland's recent history, uh, at first fishing was the major industry, and then sort of companies came in and controlled that and limited that. After that, um, the aluminum industry came in and the money from that sort of went to all the top people. Now people are saying, oh, well, we saw what happened there. As tourism takes off, let's make sure that there's a, like a wider group of people employed, um, a wider group of people who benefit from this instead of it just going to the fat cats again. And that's sort of uh, an issue that not a lot of people wouldn't talk about directly because everyone in Iceland knows each other because it's so small. <laughs> but I could sense a tension between the people who were really trying to up and coming, trying to start a company, try to do something. And then you talk to the people who are already established. Um, there's certainly a tension there about who will benefit economically from this growth. Mm. Um, it, it seemed like reading your story that there was a common thread when people talk about the future of tourism in Iceland, and that was money, even though part of the early appeal was the value of visiting Iceland after or during the recession. Um, Grimer Samenson, the Blue Lagoon CEO, who's certainly one of the top tourist people who would stand to gain, uh, he talked to you about how a trip to Iceland in the future should not be a bargain. I would like to see Iceland keep its characteristics as being a very interesting place to visit. Uh, uh, Iceland should not be uh, uh, cheap. It should be rather expensive. Uh, and and uh, and with the with the um, with the obvious opportunity that you can 
you know you can uh, you are you're able to 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 come to Iceland uh, on a low budget but but the image of the country is not that it's low budget it is yeah. rather expensive and the, these are issues that we need to uh, uh, from a strategic viewpoint uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, develop together with the authorities that that uh, that uh, how what kind of a, a destination do we want Iceland to be in 10 15 years was it um was it pretty expensive when you went or did it seem pretty bargain uh it was expensive but it was basically new york city prices i mean some of it was really surprising like i went to buy um a sandwich at a gas station and it was like nine u.s dollars um wait and- a minute what sandwich did you buy at a gas station in iceland it was egg salad <laughs> And it was nine dollars. It was good, but is that an Icelandic specialty, or are you just really? Th- they put egg salad in a lot of stuff. One of the better sandwiches I had was smoked salmon and egg salad. Right, that sounds good. And that was also nine dollars. <laughs> so it was expensive. Uh, gas was a little expensive, but for me, living in New York, I'm a little jaded because walking down the street costs five dollars. But you could see it might be hard for just the average person in Iceland, um, working a job, having to drive to work it's pretty expensive in the grocery stores also that i went into um pretty expensive especially for imported stuff uh, as you mentioned there's not like tolls and um the story points out that there's not a tax to enter the country uh and i it seems like tourism officials at least and maybe residents too i don't know uh, seem to think that both of those things should change this is Friedrich Paulsen. He's owner of the boutique Hotel Rango in Hella. We have never thought of it that we need to put up a hindrance in anything or even to slow down people or even have to have a control of the number of people into any given area. Yeah. This is so common abroad, of course, and, and the, you know, there are a certain number of people you'll allow to take even in. Even just and having people to get a pass or oh my goodness. Uh, a permit, yeah. for instance. Sure. Yeah. So I have been one of the spokesmen for, I have said we should definitely, because it's cost a hell of a lot of money to build up the infrastructure, the road system or whatever. I have been very, you know, open about it, even if that would mean that the industry as such would be having, so accepting a certain extra, we could call it tax, I wouldn't call it tax, I would say a fee on our customers coming into the country to help us to build up infrastructure. I mean, that's common in so many countries. Absolutely. Entrance fee. Absolutely. But the thing is that it's our na- in our nature. We, are, we, have, we always like to welcome people to our homes and wherever. And, of course, we find it more or less like, like we would be, it would be so dishonored. No, sorry, dis- not dishonored. It would be so impolite that we would ask people to come to our home and we would charge them for it. Right. So, but slowly, I think it's getting ground that, and I don't know anyone, any tourist who have come here I've talked to who's not willing to do so, to yeah. give so to give some money. So, is there is there like a movement right now to start putting those things into place? Is there a time frame where people need to get there in the next six months before they're going to start getting charged left and right? Well, there's no consensus. Um, talking to people both high and low in tourism, um, people have different opinions. Um, you know, they the number one goal is to not dissuade people from coming because that will sort of cook the golden goose. Um, anything that could get in the way. So, so people are sort of skeptical 
about the idea of charging a tax um, or a toll. But the thing is, there's a new uh, pro- public-private partnership that's that uh, Greemer is also on. And so they have like a five-year mandate to sort of develop any sort of changes or, or ideas for new laws that would go into place um, and then to put them into place. Uh, it's been a year, year and a half since that group launched and nothing's really happened. So they're working on it, but I don't really think that you need to hop on the next plane to Iceland because um, there's still a lot of work to do. Uh, so other than $9 egg salad sandwiches, what what are some of the experiences you had in Iceland or, or some of the things that you really took away um, as being memorable other than interviewing multiple people every day while you well, were there? I will say that as a journalist, people were extremely welcoming. Many welcomed me into their homes. Um, most people took time out of their day to chat with me and they were all very candid. Um, so I sort of got a sense that the people there are straight shooters. Like they they see a problem, they see an issue with tourism and now they're gonna try to figure out how to make it work. Um, in terms of the other experiences, I mean, as you heard at the beginning of the podcast, um, I was in downtown Reykjavik when the Icelandic soccer team beat England and that was amazing. Um, people were so nice to me. They kept coming over and putting their arm around me and chanting and Icelandic. So uh, I guess <laughs> I fit in there. But um, I just felt that everyone was really welcoming. And this whole thing about um, uh, there being a bit of a backlash is more about the economic issues at play than it is uh, xenophobia. Mm-hmm. Do you see like amazing things? Like what did it, what did it look like? What they, they shoot, what they shoot? Some of Game of Thrones. Yeah. There. Um, well, it was rainy a lot of the time I was <laughs> there. But uh, I, I went to a bunch of the Golden Circle um, and that's destinations. What? That's like the, the tourist. So the, the tourist, there's, they call it the Golden Circle. It's basically to the east of Reykjavik. Um, it's sort of the major national park, uh, the geyser at Geyser. It's, I guess, where the word geyser comes from. Um, in addition to that, there's a whole bunch of farms, a giant waterfall. I'm not pronouncing any of the names because I can't. Um, But there's so much to see. And that's only one corner, one small corner of the country. That's the most famous part. But you still have the rest, the other 90% of the country that barely any people go to. And that's why tourism could be really sustainable if they figure out a way to sort of spread tourism in in a way that's good for the environment. Um, gives people jobs, sort of provides for innovation, um, and doesn't just sort of become corporatized. Um, there's a lot of potential in Iceland because there's so much beauty and so many places that really are untouched. And I'll say that Skift um, was especially interested in Iceland because um, our colleagues went there a couple of years ago. They were part of this uh, explosive growth. I don't think he- I wasn't part of Skift yet. I don't think you were either. So other people have memories of Iceland without us. But so you found all of these factors kind of mixing to create the perfect storm in Iceland. Um, There's tourism that fueled a post-recession recovery, infrastructure that wasn't quite ready for that, locals who maybe got a little annoyed at bad tourist behavior. Uh, have Have you thought about what other destinations might be about to enter a similar phase or or maybe are in the early stages of that? Um, like if you were going to do this kind of treatment of a, a destination next, where would you choose? 
Oh, spoiler tags. Uh, no. Uh, <laughs> Not necessarily what Skift is doing. Um, so I think the, the interesting thing to look at is places that have had economic trouble and are still cheap um, that are easy to get to. I think that um, Greece is probably one because it's still a really popular tourism destination. Um, I think that there are places in Italy, whether it's Rome, Venice, um, those are those are two places that are, are experiencing a lot of tourism. Um, and in Asia, I mean, there are so many places, uh, whether it's Burma or Thailand or even Singapore, because uh, Singapore secretly has the biggest cruise port in Asia um, of any single location. So places like that um, are sort of under threat from tourism in Thailand, especially it's sort of taken a bad turn for them because tourism's dropped um, and the economy's hurting again. So you can sort of see the downside of being so reliant on tourism to drive mm-hmm. your economy. Mm-hmm. Um, well, Andrew, I hope you get to go to those places. Me too. <laughs> Thank you so much. This was fun. Thanks for having me. 